Lord, it's a beautiful book. There's so much in it for us. We're gathering through your word. And so, Lord, we gather together. We participate in this together, Lord, with expectation and anticipation that you're going to use the truth from your word to change our lives as we turn our focus to its truth. We look today, Father, at honoring our fathers and our mothers. Lord, help us do this better today so that we can better love you and honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've, I've always said uh, over the years, I've always been a pain to my mother. Uh, it's just the reality of my life ever since the day I was born, because I was born right a day or two before Mother's Day. So I've literally always been a pain to my mother. And uh, so I, I say happy Mother's Day to you, Mom. Sorry for all the pain I caused you, quite literally and uh, figuratively as well. And I'm glad you're able to be here with us this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers who are here this morning and all of the people who are here this morning who serve as role, mo- as role models uh, and as significant women in other women's lives. I think it's very important that we acknowledge that as well. As we open the book of Exodus this morning, it's such a beautiful, full, powerful book. I love it. It's one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. And it's so beautiful because at the end of Genesis, all hope seems lost. It all seems lost. God had made this significant and powerful promise with Abraham back in the beginning of Genesis. He's promised him land. He's promised him seed, which means offspring. And he's promised to bless him. And we know how the story of Genesis unfolds. And as the book of Exodus opens, Israel is in captivity. The circumstances are dire. And as we enter the book, God takes a weak and apprehensive man in Moses and uses him to secure and bring forth his people from Egyptian captivity. We're watching God establish a nation of people. And and when we read the book of Exodus, we should almost read Israel as a character and some of our favorite novels, our favorite books, whether they're works of fiction or non-fiction, are the works where we see a person who's rising from the ashes. And quite literally, this is what's happening to the nation of Israel as we read the book of Exodus. God is fulfilling the promise that he's made to Abraham in Genesis. And he's doing it in spite of the Hebrews people's circumstance. In spite of their dire circumstance. He's fulfilling his promises made to Abraham in Genesis. He's he's drawing them out of bondage and captivity. He's providing them every day with food and water while they wander through the wilderness. He's with them visibly as a cloud by day. And at night, a pillar of fire. He is systematically uniting them as a people group. And he's preparing his people to receive the gift of the land that he had promised them. He's giving them his word. It's a gift. It's the law. 
And we're going to specifically look at one of those laws today. And he's giving it to establish his people so that they can worship God and that they can grow in their love for God and that they can honor each other as they grow, excuse me, in their ability and understanding of how to love one another. So we might ask the question this morning, and I think it's a fair question, why did God give the law? What was the purpose for which it was given? And one of the reasons that he gave the law is because the law served to help unite a nomadic people. These were people who had been in captivity. They had been under the rule and under the law of a foreign pagan king. And God's giving them this law to unite them, to establish them under the banner of one God. It set his people apart. It taught them how to properly worship the God who saved them and how to love and live in community with one another. It also quickly exposed a reality that, unfortunately, friends, is tucked away inside of every single one of us. It exposes the reality that we are a people who are prone to wander, to go our own way, to create our own rules, and to neglect the God who called us and named us in order to pursue more transient and temporary things. And so we find that God is using his law as guide rails in the lives of his people and in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever gone on one of those beautiful spring drives and you've been on the highway and you're driving down the highway, maybe it's one of those mountain drives through the Shenandoah Valley and the leaves are changing and you're taking in the glory of God's creation. On either side of the highway, there are these things that can be like distractions There are these metal things that aren't really pretty. They're out of place. Everybody know what those are, those guide rails, right? And and they kind of break up the beauty of the creation. But you know they're important and they're necessary because they help keep us where we're to be on the roads. Those yellow lines, they're important. Those white lines, and by the way, the yellow lines are really important. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And the, the white lines, they're important too. These lines, they help guide us, and the Lord uses His law in this way to help keep us on path, to help us to keep from veering to the right or to the left. And so as we sit here today, we might ask, well, the law was given to the Old Testament people, to the people of Israel, and we're looking at Exodus twenty twelve today, and is the law still relevant for the church today? And friends, I would caution you, I think one of the greatest lies that Satan would have us believe as a church is that the law is not relevant anymore. And we hear this a lot, and we hear it in many different ways. Sometimes you hear people say, well, Jesus fulfilled the law. Paul said we're no longer under the law. The law was for the people of the Old Testament. It's not for the church today. There's nothing valuable or relevant in it for us. But Jesus said this, a new command I give you. A new command I give you. There was some law that was still important to Jesus. Those rallying around the argument that the law is no longer relevant, they love to use Romans 16, where Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That is true. As a church, we now are under grace. 
But Paul also says this in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law by faith? And he said, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So church, the law still has relevance for us today. It's still important that we know it and we understand how God would want us to apply it in our lives. Jesus says this in John chapter 12, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so the law is still relevant for the church today because the Spirit uses His law to teach us how to love. And we are a people that need taught how to love. We really do need taught that. And from this law, we can practically see how love is applied in community. And Jesus summed up the law uh, in two commands. He said, love God. And love others. Those were the two commands that he summed up the law. He said that were the most important. But Paul, he whittled it down even further. In Romans 13, chapter 8, Paul explains the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Further explaining in verse 10, therefore, this is Paul's word in verse 10 of Romans 13, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. This love is to be applied to all our neighbors. It was the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus taught us who our neighbors are. Our neighbors are the people that God places in our pathways at any particular moment on any given day. Friends, that's why we say there are no chance encounters. Every person the Lord brings into our life is an opportunity for us to show love and care. And by nature, from birth, our closest neighbors are often our parents and our caregivers. And so tucked away in the middle of the Ten Commandments that God provided through Moses was this fifth commandment that we come to today. And we have three questions we want to answer this morning as we look at this commandment. The first is this. What does it look like to honor our mother and father? What does that look like? Two, how do we do it? What are some practical ways that we can be doing this? And three, uh, we want to explore what Jesus accomplishes in our lives through obedience to this particular command. Please take your Bibles. Turn in Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible today, there's red Bibles right in front of you in your pew. You can take one of those. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verse 12, and we're going to be looking at the other supporting scriptures that also have this command built within them. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This command is also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 16. It's on the screen. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, 
and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And again, just in case we were questioning the relevance of this, it's repeated in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, look at how it's stated there. Children, and by the way, let's pause. Who are children? Anyone in this room who has a mother or a father, we're still children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you might live long in the land. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Now I believe it would be appropriate for us to pause here and to take a moment to reflect that some of us and acknowledge the reality that some of us in this room may not have physical mother, physical father. There may be brokenness in our hearts or in our lives in this area. This may be a very difficult subject for us to consider when we think about our past. And I want to share for those in this room that are in that situation that the Lord has provided somebody in your life who's fulfilled this role for you, who's stood in the gap as a mother or a father, who's loved you like a mother or a father and has been a significant person to that relationship, these commands would also apply. Who are your primary caregivers? To those people, this law of love should be applied. And the fact is, and it's a reality, as we get older and as we age, it can often become more difficult for us to apply this love, this honor, to our parents. As we grow together with our parents, life's experiences sometimes bring hurt. Sometimes life's experiences cause division in this relationship. Sometimes we have different expectations for the latter years of care. I've often had conversations with guys a little bit older than me. This happens more often than not, probably. And they're, they're agonizing over having to have a discussion with their father about him having to give up his driver's license. And, and there can be different expectations as to how that might look later in life. And so sometimes this idea of honor can be difficult. And while at one time our parents might have used the rod to motivate some of us in this room, once we're adults, we don't often fear the rod very often. At least I hope not many of us do. <laughs> this fear of discipline is not any longer a motivator to us. We must be guided in the application of love by our hearts. And friends, our hearts belong to Jesus. And now this is important too, because I've heard this before in the church. Well, this is a nice command, but it's just for the kids. No, this was a law. Like all the other laws, it was given for all people. If your parents or parent figures are still living, this command still applies. We can't take a, that one's for the, we got, we actually, the adults only have nine commandments. The kids have ten. That, one, that fifth one, that's for the kids. That's not the approach that we can take with this law. It's for all of us. And friends, it's beautiful. It's a linchpin commandment. It serves as a transition. Let me explain that. It's smack dab right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth commandment. And if we're being raised up in the Lord, 
Ironically, it's our parents who are our first and surest example of how to apply the first four commandments. Our parents, as we're being raised up in the Lord, hopefully are teaching us how to apply and live out the laws that apply to how we honor God. And in the same token, if we are able to love our parents in a God-honoring way, and our relationship with them is established, then we should also know how to love our neighbors in a God-honoring way. So this fifth commandment, it serves as a transition looking back. God places people in our pathways, often our parents, that teach us how to apply the first four commandments. And looking forward, the fifth commandment, God has placed people in our pathways which with, with which we are to practice applying these principles of love with. And so listen, our friends, our parents' friends, serve as both a coach teaching us how to apply these laws of love to the people in our lives, and they also serve as a playing field for which we can practice how to apply these laws of love in our lives. Coach and game field. If we get this right in the home, the hope is that we will also get it right in community. Since our home is the first community that God gives us as children. And so the command is to honor. But the question is, what does honor look like? What does honor look like? And it's a fair question. And sometimes the best way to understand a word or a concept is to realize its antonym. What it is not. What is the opposite of honor? Can you think of it in your mind right now? Have you ever thought of it before? What is the opposite of honor? Can anybody think of that? Shame. The opposite of honor is shame or contempt. And I want to show this to you. If you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Exodus 20. Turn back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. This is, by the way, this is all over the book of Genesis, friends. This is amazingly built into the book of Genesis that we struggle applying this command in our lives. Look at Genesis chapter 9. You remember what has happened. You've had this great flood and the ark has come to rest uh, at Mount Ararat, and the people, uh, once the water recedes, are coming out of the ark, and Noah makes this covenant with God that God would never destroy the world by flood again, and they have this celebration, and Noah stumbles into his tent, and he falls asleep, perhaps a little bit um, unhindered. Let's put it that way. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 9, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were, were dispersed. Now look at what happens in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine. He became drunk, and he laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards. They didn't want to see their father's nakedness. And covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards 
and they did not see their father's nakedness. Friends, nakedness in the Hebrew culture was shameful. It was shameful. It was a culture of modesty, of privacy, covering oneself appropriately so as not to be shameful. And the implication in the passage here is that the sin was that the son took and exposed this nakedness in a harmful, shameful way to his brothers. One that would have caused embarrassment to Noah where he had been awake and aware. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. It wasn't just that he saw him naked, it's what he did and what he said and how he behaved after it that was shameful, that brought shame upon Noah. Commentator Kenneth Matthews suggests this, quote, Ham's reproach was not in seeing his father unclothed, though that was a shameful thing, but rather in his outspoken delight at his father's disgraceful condition, end quote. And and friends, this is not the only instance in the book of Genesis where children bring reproach on their parents. In fact, Genesis makes a painstakingly clear case that it is not the natural orientation of our hearts for us to apply this command of love. What do we have in Genesis? Lot and his daughters, a despicable act that takes place. We have Jacob shaming or swindling his father. We have Joseph's brothers then shaming Jacob by selling their brother into slavery. And all of that, and we have not yet mentioned Adam and Eve's shame in the garden against their creator father, God. And and, and we sit here and wonder, what does honor look like? And we talk about the antonym of this. Have you ever been in a place, maybe in the market, in the grocery store, in a public place, and you've seen a parent with their child, and you've seen a child disrespecting their parent? You know that feeling that you get. It's kind of a feeling of of being angry or upset or feeling bad for the mother or the father because you're witnessing the shame in a public place, a child shaming their parents by their disrespect or disobedience. Some of you have been in that situation. Or maybe perhaps if it hits closer to home, maybe, maybe you've gone to visit somebody at a retirement home before. Maybe you've gone to visit your mother or your, your father. Or maybe you've gone to visit grandmother or grandfather. And as you sit there and talk with them and share with them and hear what the Lord's doing in their life, you hear somebody else talking about how no one ever comes to visit them. They're so lonely. Their children live right in the community, but they never come and see them. They never call them. They never interact with them. And you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach or in your heart. And you feel bad for that person. Shame. Contempt. These are things that are very real in our culture today. Friends, this is what honor is. Honor elevates and expresses value and love. While shame disintegrates and expresses worthlessness and indifference. I'll say that again. Honor elevates and it expresses value and love while shame disintegrates and expresses worthlessness and indifference. Obedience to this command to the nation of Israel, it was a serious issue. One where if this command was broken, it was punishable by death under Old Testament laws. Exodus chapter 21, 
verses 15 and 17 says, Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. That's physically striking them. Exodus 21, verse 17 says, Whoever curses, that's words, friends. Whoever curses. Maybe some of you remember a time when you were young and you said a curse against your mother or your father. This is an instance where we're glad to be living under grace and not under the law. Because whoever curses his father and mother, according to the Old Testament law, could be put to death. And just in case you're not certain if that's clear, Leviticus 20, chapter 9, says the same exact thing. The command was also tied to the blessings and cursings that were given to Israel in the covenant that God made with them. Israel's failure to follow this particular command along with the others is ultimately one of the things that led to their captivity. Look at what Ezekiel says in chapter 22. He's bemoaning the captivity of Israel, of the nation. Why the people were taken into captivity. What happened? One of the indictments that he has against the people, that the Lord had against the people, is that they were not honoring this commandment. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Verse 7, father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. And friends, it's all over the Proverbs. Let me just read a few, and you can find more on your own time. Proverbs 19.26, He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 20, If one curses his father and mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 24, whoever robs his father or his mother and says that is no transgression is a companion of a man who destroys. Destroys. Disobedience to our parents, dishonor to them, robs them of the honor that they are due as commanded by God. And you know, I love... When you look in the New Testament, you have this group of people, the Pharisees. They always thought they were doing all these commandments right, didn't they? They thought they had this thing down and that no one could bring a charge against them. Yet they were wrong as well. If you go to the book of Mark, if you want to turn there, Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees are trying to pass judgment upon Jesus' disciples for not following the traditions of the elders. And their thinking here is that they themselves, we can pass this judgment upon you because we ourselves are perfectly following the law. So we're able to pass this judgment on you. Jesus takes this opportunity in this moment in Mark chapter 7 to uncover the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Look at verses 9 to 13 of Mark chapter 7. Again, Mark chapter 7 verse 9. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, 
then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. What was happening, the Pharisees were saying, well, the money that I had set aside or had reserved to care for you in your older years of life, I can no longer give you, Mom, Dad. I'm sorry, I'm now going to dedicate it to the Lord. And, and in their name, then they would then use that money for their own gain. And they would justify it by saying that they were giving it or setting it aside for the Lord. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Take care of your parents. Take care of your parents. Paul also expresses this in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4, it's on the screen. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... This is now for a widow who would be a mother of children or grandchildren. Let them first learn. What's one way you can show godliness to your own household? Honor your parents. Honor your parents. Let them show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And one way, friends, that we express our godliness in this life is to honor our parents to care for them. It's one of the ways that we express our love and our honor for God. And so there's two situations for many of us that are in this room today. Some of us are here and we still live under the roof of our parents. And so honoring our parents while we're under their roof looks a lot like joyful obedience to their precepts and commandments. Joyful obedience. I say the word joyful Because it's not honoring when you ask your child to do something and they curse you on their way to do it. They do it, but they don't do it joyfully. That's not very honoring. Joyful obedience, right? And when we're out of the house honoring our parents, when we're independent from them, looks a lot like consistent care and communication as the Lord directs the need. As the Lord directs the need. Consistent care Consistent communication could just be a phone call once a week. I don't know what it is for you. It's different for each of us how that looks. But as the Lord is working in our heart, as he's directing the need each week, we respond to the call. Consistent care and communication when we're out from under the roof of our parents. There are actually two promises that go along with this commandment. We want to take a look at both those promises. This is important. The book of Ephesians reiterates that this is a command that's given with a promise. And actually, if you go and look in Deuteronomy, you find two promises that are attached to this command. And the first promise is this. It's found in the Exodus 20 passage. It's worded this way. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is given you. So what does that mean? And see, I think over the years, church, unfortunately, we have often misinterpreted this command to mean like physical days in number. And we think that by obeying this command, somehow we're going to have this really long life in regards to age. And we're going to live till we're going to be really, really, really old. But that's not how it happens for everyone. Sometimes we forget that these commands were given to a group of people and not an individual. The promise of long life in the land that was given to them by God was attached to God's covenant promises with his people. 
Were the people to obey this command and honor their fathers and mothers, their days would be long in the land that God gave them. In other words, they wouldn't be taken into captivity out of the land that God had promised them. Were they to obey this command along with the others? But if the people were to fall away, and one evidence of this falling away would be dishonoring their mothers and fathers, they would face discipline, captivity, wrath, and judgment. So then I think an appropriate follow-up question is, why does Paul quote this promise in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3? That's a great question. If it's tied to the land and the people and God's covenant promises, then why does he quote it to Gentile believers in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3? And the answer to that question, friends, is that we have been promised a kingdom. As we sit here today, one evidence that we are part of God's kingdom is our obedience and submission to the command of honoring our fathers and our mothers. There's another promise here, and this promise is found in both the Deuteronomy and the Ephesians passage, and it's more like a uh, kind of like a blessing or like a benediction that it may go well with you. That it may go well with you. And here we find a peace of mind that comes behind joyful obedience to God's command. Unhindered from feelings of conviction or guilt, we have peace because we're living in accordance with God's principles and his precepts. It's going well with us. We're not feeling conviction or guilt over the fact that we're not honoring, obeying, caring for, communicating with our parents. The promise is always linked together with God's covenant promises to his people. Following God's ways allows us to live with a peace of mind. So what does Jesus teach us or develop within us through our obedience to this command? And there's five character traits I want to look at briefly with you this morning. First is a position of dependence. Jesus teaches us a position of dependence in applying this law. This is something, friends, as we've been working in the world of adoption that is deeply troubling for children. Learning how to attach if they've never had to be dependent on a parent before. Those first months when they're in your home through maybe the first three years are vitally important as they learn what dependence actually looks like. And God actually can teach us how to depend on Him the way we're supposed to, by learning how to depend and rely on our parents. So there's a position of dependence that he builds up in us, a healthy kind of dependence. We talk about relying on the Lord. He teaches us that as we learn how to depend on our parents. There's also a position of submission. And we know this. We know that children who struggle with submission to authority and think everyone is out to get them, oftentimes have a relationship with a parent in their life that they struggle with as well. And so Jesus uses this to develop within us a position of submission. Notice these are counter-cultural characteristics. These are not things that are honored or elevated in our culture today, but they should be honored and elevated in the church because they're meaningful to Jesus. A position of dependence, a posture of submission to authority, to godly authority. These are important things. An attitude 
of humility. The world does not revolve around us. One of the ways that God uses our parents in our lives as we honor them is that they humble us. Because what we put the cart in front of the horse a lot. And our parents help us identify which is the horse and which is the cart. Because when we're young, we often don't know the difference between the two. And thankfully, we have parents who help humble us. And so Jesus teaches us an attitude of humility as we submit to them, as we depend on them. There's also a practice of selflessness, learning how to recognize the needs of others, not overlooking or being indifferent towards people who have needs. Our parents teach us these things. They teach us how to care for the needs of others. They teach us how to sometimes pray for others, how to go the extra mile. And as we watch and learn, Jesus develops this within us and a pattern of sacrificial love. I don't know about some of you that sit in this room, but if I could only count the countless miles that my parents put in when I was growing up to take me places, to lay aside their own agendas, their own schedules, and to put me in a car and lug me all over the county, often after a long, difficult day of work. To lay aside an afternoon's agenda and to go out and throw a ball in the backyard. To set something down. They teach us. The Lord uses them in our life to teach us what sacrificial love looks like. Friends, there are days that I come home and all I want to do is plop down in front of the computer and just let my mind just open up and just be able to get on and to read something or just uh, be engaged by something. But I have children at home that require me to lay aside the things that I want and I desire and to sometimes teach them what sacrificial love looks like in practice. In practice, even when we don't feel like it. And then through their love, Jesus can teach us many things about sacrificial love. And some of you are here today and perhaps your parents are non-believers who sit here and you engage these questions as you look at this command. And I think what a beautiful way to teach them about the powerful love of Jesus. If your parents are non-believers, this is a beautiful way to teach them about who Jesus is and how Jesus loves us. Now the goal today, friends, isn't to leave this place and to try really, really hard by our own effort to honor our father and mother because we will fail. We will fail. And perhaps we'll fail so much that eventually we'll just want to give up and stop trying altogether. There's no action here in this command. It's a posture of the heart. Honor is a posture of the heart. So what we should do, church, as a body of Christ united together, wanting to honor those in our life who have, have had significant influences on us, is we should be motivated by the love that we have been shown and the great thankfulness for that love that we should seek to love and honor our parents in the same manner that we have been loved and we have been honored by God. Following the example of Christ, being compelled by Him to love and to honor our parents. And when we do this, when we're able to do this in our lives, we should be thankful to Jesus because He's accomplished it. Because we see today this is not the natural posture of our hearts. Jesus produces this behavior in us through the Spirit and we should be thankful. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for its truths. 
We acknowledge that this is a command that is often difficult, sometimes confusing, sometimes requires a great level of discernment and thought on how to apply. But Lord, today we trust in You to produce this posture of the heart within us. You have our hearts in Your hands. And so Jesus, we pray that if we're able to honor our parents and show them the love that you would want, that you would be receiving glory and honor for it, for producing that behavior in us. That we wouldn't be fighting by our own efforts to do this, Lord, but we would be leaning back on the power of who you are, allowing you to work through our weaknesses and our ability to honor and our ability to love and show sacrificial love. And that as we do this, people might look and see that something's different. And it might cause them to ask questions and perhaps open doors to a relationship where you might reveal yourself in a significant way to them. Lord, we recognize that through following this command that we can grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. And we pray this morning that you would help us to do that as we leave this place today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a dry Mother's Day.